You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. Good morning. We're going to be reading from 1 Samuel 15 verses 1 through 11 and please stand as we read through the word of God. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have done. They have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telam. 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the the Kenites, go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lamb. And all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. So this is the last sermon in the series, the questionable series. And uh, originally I wasn't going to pick 1 Samuel chapter 15 as the concluding passage for this series, but, but when I was preparing the sermon that I, for the sermon that I preached last week and saw that Israel, after God judged them and said, you were not going to, you're, you're not going to enter into the land of Canaan for another 40 years, and they decided they were going to try anyway, and they were beaten by the Amalekites. It just jogged my thinking about what, what God had told Saul, or what he commanded Saul, the king of, you know, king of Israel, the first king of Israel, what to do, and, and, and that whole story. And so I thought, well, that, I think that's a fitting passage to, to bring to, conclu- to conclusion this sermon series. We're going to celebrate communion later in the service. Uh, when, we do, when we sing our final song, which will be, the way I described it in the first service is that I, I want the final song to just serve as the concluding prayer to our worship service. And during that time will be the time to celebrate communion, to do communion individually at your own pace when you're ready. So if you didn't get one of these on the way in, make sure you grab one. They're, all, they're on the table back there. And so we're going to be celebrating communion. Um, towards the end of the service. Have you ever heard of the movie The Stepford Wives? How many of you have heard of that? I, I've never seen it. I actually didn't know it existed until this week, this past week. There's a book called The Stepford Wives. I don't know what year it came out in, but then there was a mo- the first movie uh, uh, after the book came out in the 1970s, and then I think it was in the 90s or early 2000s, there was a remake of the movie. I probably won't see it, but I I read the premise, watched the trailer, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. So basically, the the story is 
about uh, this community in Stepford, Connecticut, or this nice, quiet community. And uh, the story, I believe, centers around this couple who were living in New York. Uh, the wife, who was a successful, uh, was, su- was successful in business and uh, at her job, lost her job, and they decided to move to Stepford to just focus on the family and for a quiet, quieter living. And when when they initially went into Stepford, when initially they moved there, things seemed great. They seemed peaceful and quiet, but there were some odd things that uh, I believe her name was Joanna, is uh, the the wife who moved from New York with her husband into this area. Some things that she noticed that were just off for her. And what was off was that the that the women of Stepford all wore similar dresses. I mean, there were different colors and stuff, but the style was similar. Looked like they were, uh, you know, dressed for the, like the 1960s. They were very agreeable to their husbands. They they did all the housework. Uh, they did all those things. And what she discovered, what they discovered, is that uh, later in the, I'm just giving the story away. Uh, they discovered that the husbands basically turned their wives into robots. Now I don't know how they did that. But they, they either replaced them with robots or they did something with the brains. But they made them into robots, and so they were agreeable. Everything that they wanted, the wives would agree to. And, and, and so they thought that that was the way to have a better and more meaningful relationship, to have these wives, known as the Stedford Wives. Well, I read a, a quote from Tim Keller, and he, he said something in light of the way that we tend to treat the God of the Bible, when we come to a difficult passage, like 1 Samuel chapter 15. When we come across a verse or a passage and it just doesn't, we don't like it, we, we tend to uh, sugarcoat it or we, or we just ignore it altogether. Tim Keller said this, he said, if you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You won't. You'll have a Stepford God a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction with. Uh, we tend to do that. This whole sermon series, I, it was questionable. And, and you submitted a bunch of topics and questions, like 40 of them, of uh, things that you've not heard me preach on or you've not heard a pastor preach on before. As a way of just, it was just my way of demonstrating, you know what, the Bible speaks into a lot of things in our lives. And some of what the Bible says is uncomfortable. And, uh, and we've seen that throughout this sermon series. 1 Samuel chapter 15 is an uncomfortable passage. What do you do with this? Like God said, destroy all of the Amalekites. And, and so what I want to do is I just want to set up 1 Samuel chapter 15 for you as a way of conclu- in an effort to conclude our sermon series together. And what I, what I want to do is just kind of just remind you of what I talked about a little bit last week. I'm just very, very briefly. Re, remember last week you, I, I mentioned that you, you had God commanded Abraham that you, or he said to Abraham, he promised Abraham that, that you will be exceedingly great. Your descendants will be exceedingly great. I'm going to make a nation of you and I'm, going to pro, I'm promising you land. And, and what's going to happen, Abraham, is that your descendants are going to wind up in a foreign land. They're going to be slaves, essentially, and then they will be released. And what I said in that sermon was during the 400 
years in, in, in slavery in Egypt, God, in the midst of Israel's suffering, he was doing something beautiful in their lives, amazing in their lives. He was shaping them and preparing them to be his people. While uh, the, the Amorites, who God said he would judge, he, was, he had relented on his judgment on them, gave them every opportunity to repent, uh, and then he released his people, delivered his people from the bondage of slavery with, you know, through 10 miraculous plagues and just showed up in a, in, a, in a way that was difficult to deny, so much so that Rahab, who was an Amorite, who was in Jericho, uh, heard of this God who delivered Israel from the bondage of slavery and wanted to know that God and to worship that God. And I said last week, it was as if, in fact, I made that connection last week, made this connection last week, that it was as if God was, was, while he was relenting from judgment on the Amorites, he was preparing them and moving time and space and history so that Rahab would be born, who would meet this, uh, meet this Hebrew guy, and together they would have a child. And, that, and, and, and long story short, she was in the fa- she's in the family tree of Jesus. So I talked about that last week. What I also mentioned was when, when, uh, the, when Israel was delivered from the bondage of slavery and as they were wandering around in the wilderness, in Numbers chapter 13, Moses, we read about Moses sending 12 spies into the land of Canaan, this land that God had promised them. And uh, they went in, these 12 spies, representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And two of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, believed that God was going to give them the land and he was going to deliver the people into their hands. The other 10 spies didn't believe that. They were intimidated by what they saw. And, and here's, I, so I, I want you to hear this again because it sets up 1 Samuel chapter 15 for us that the people, this is the report that the 10 spies gave to Israel that resulted in them saying, we can't do it, we're not going there, God judged them, this is, this is what they said, and the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large, and besides, we saw the descendants of Anak, that's the father of the Amalekites. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites and the Jebusites and the Amorites dwell in the hill country, and the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. That's why we can't do it. We saw the Nephilim. We saw the giants. We were like grasshoppers in their sight. And, and, and so that's the people. Every time the Amalekites, is, the Amalekites are mentioned, they're mentioned in light of the fact that these are people who absolutely hated the Hebrew people. They hated them. In fact, shortly after the, Israel was delivered from the bondage of slavery, they tried to attack the Hebrew people. They tried to attack Israel at their weakest point. And God said that he would judge them for that. So, so I really have two points. One is that the Amalekites doubted the, the, the legitimacy of God. Now here's the thing. Like I, like I showed you with Rahab. If Rahab, who was in Jericho, which was a major city of the Amorites, if, if she heard about how God delivered Israel from the bondage of Egypt, so did the, the Amalekites. And what we learn in Exodus, uh, one of the chapters, Exodus chapter 7 is that, um, not, not chapter 7, later in Exodus, what we learn is that, is that the Amalekites tried to attack Israel 
at their weakest point. God delivered the Amalekites into the hands of, of Israel in a miraculous way. That's the story when Moses was holding up his arms and he was getting really tired and every time his arms started to droop, the Amalekites would win and then Caleb, I think it was Caleb and Joshua or two, two people on each side held up his arms and God miraculously delivered them. Well, that's that story. And after God delivered the Israelites from the Amalekites, after they won that battle miraculously, this is what God told Moses to do. Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it to the elder or, or to the ears or in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out of memory the memory of the uh, of Amalek from under heaven. Meaning I'm going to completely wipe them out for what they did. In Deuteronomy 25, we read these words: Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies around you and the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. So that sets up Samuel chapter 15, 1 Samuel chapter 15. And if you're wondering, well, how much did they really hate the Hebrew people? How many of you are familiar with the book of Esther in the Old Testament? So are you familiar with the story? Yeah, I, I don't have time to go into it. Read it sometime. It's not long. It's not a very long book in the Bible. But, but there is, you know, Esther, God raised up Esther to, to be the, the, the representative, basically, of the people of God. And she becomes kind of like a savior type of person. Well, in that story, there's this guy by the name of Haman. And Haman is, is identified as Haman the Agagite. Scholars believe that he was a descendant of Agag, the king, that we read about in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And uh, because Saul spared, uh, didn't follow through with everything that God had commanded them, is why Haman was most likely on the scene. Haman, just a brief synopsis of this, like this small part in the story of Esther. Haman uh, uh, basically was, was, he was elevated, he was promoted and by the king of Persia, and uh, he, he wanted people to pay homage, and so people were supposed to pay homage to him, and this guy by the name of Mordecai, who was a Hebrew man, would not bow to Haman. So Haman was, like, was totally ticked off over that. And so we're told that he was filled with fury. And then he learned who peop what people group Mordecai belonged to. Mordecai belonged to the Hebrew people. And what we read of, of, of Haman is that he sought to destroy all the Jews, every single one of them. Uh, and so he had an edict, you know, with the king's seal of approval on it, uh, on letters, basically, and, and they picked a day to do this. And in the letter, it was that on this day, you are to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. And listen, this is really important to set up this whole chapter here. And to plunder their goods. Plunder their goods. So this happened way after... Saul. 
But it was because of Saul's rebellion, because he didn't follow through what God commanded him. And not just Saul, David was guilty of this as well. Sets up this, this you know, chapter 15 for us. They hated the Hebrew people. So what I want to do is I just want to retell the story and, uh, and, and just to kind of set it up for you. Well, like, who are these Amalekite people? Well, Saul, or, or, or Samuel, who was a prophet, who represented God, he started out as a judge, and then he was the one who anointed uh, Saul as king because the people wanted him to be king. What you need to know about Saul is that, that Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, now, what was the promise that was made to the Hebrew people? The, that the line of the kings would come, through the li- would come through the tribe of Judah. But the people saw Saul. He was tall, he was handsome, he was good-looking, looked strong. He fit the part of a king, because that's what they saw with all the other nations. So, so, they, so Samuel anointed Saul as king. And he started off great, or it seemed like he started off great. He was totally for the Lord, wanted to do what the Lord wanted him to do. And then things went from good to bad and from bad to worse with his life. And and I think when you, when you're, when you become familiar with chapter 15 and what happened here, you you get the sense for why things went from good to bad and from bad to worse in his life to the point where the kingdom was stripped from him. So the command is, in this passage, and I hope you can follow in your Bible, follow along with me here and see this. The command was destroy all of the Amalekites. Here's what you need to understand. This was not an act of, um, of, of war profiting. So what would happen? You know, typically what happens when nations go to war with each other? Somebody profits from it. This was not that. This is an act of justice. This is, a, this is an act of justice as a result of God's holiness and the sin of the Amalekites. So what did God tell Saul to do? He told him, destroy everything. Well, what's everything? Uh, men, women, children, and infants. And they're like, wow, that's hard. And, he, and, he, and not only that, all the lifestyle, everything. You're not to, in fact, what God was telling Saul is, you are not to profit from this. This is not about you getting rich, Saul. This is not about benefiting Israel in any way. This is about my justice and about what, what is deserved. So everything is to be destroyed. And so go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both men and women, children and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul's response to that was, you got it. I am the Lord's king, and I'm going to do this thing because I want to be a good Hebrew. So, that, you know, so, so what does he do? He gets his soldiers together, and they, they make war with the Amalekites. Why did the Amalekites deserve this? Because they knew of God, they hated God, and they hated his people. And God, God had decided to judge them. And like the Amorites, like last week's sermon, he'd relented. He'd give them opportunity to repent, and, and they didn't. Which leads me to the second point, is that Saul doubted the legitimacy of God's glory. This is, this is, how, this is the first, I think this is the first step towards rationalizing your own sins. Sugarcoating your own sins. Making God a step for God and, and, and replacing a step for God with the God of the Bible. 
Hey, you, you don't want a God who's going to contradict you. You don't want a God who's going to make you uncomfortable. Well, you want a God that's agreeable. You want a God who's going to tell you things that, 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 that you want to hear. And so Saul doubted the legitimacy of God's glory. I'm going to show you how I, how I know that, how we know that from, from the text. So, so what we learn in verse, in verse 8 and 9, if you're, hopefully you're following along, verses 8 and 9, here's, here's what we're told. But Saul, and the, but Saul with the edge of the, you know, I'm sorry, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, and of the fattened calves, and the lambs, and all that was good, and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised, listen to this, all that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So the stuff they didn't want, they, did, they destroyed. Here's what Saul did. Saul spared the worst of the people, he saved the worst of the people, and he took the best of the plunder for himself. And I'll show you towards the end of this chapter why we know Agag was the worst of the Amalekites. He spared the worst of the people and he saved the best of the plunder. And so God told Samuel what happened and uh, he said, I regret that I have made King Saul uh, king, or I made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And so it was told to Samuel, and, this is, and then you get a picture of the heart of Samuel. Samuel loved the Lord. And, it, and we're told this, that um, after God said what he said to Samuel, Sam, we're, we, we learn that Samuel was angry. This is verse 11. He was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. He cried to the Lord all night. Why? Because he loved Saul. I mean, he cared for this man. He was like a pastor to Saul. He, he, he anointed this guy as king, and, and that Saul would would disobey the word of the Lord, broke his heart. So Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. Verse 12, and Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. Why did he rise early to meet Saul in the morning? Well, one, he didn't sleep all night, and two, he was eager to just confront Saul and say, hey, what's going on, dude? Like, what, what, why did you do this thing? And <clears throat> here's, here's what we learn. Saul, this is, this is staggering. And it was told to Samuel, look at this, it was told to Samuel that Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument to who? To himself. For himself. For himself. And turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. Well, why would he do that? If you, if you read through the Old Testament, what you'll discover is that when, when, God, when it was apparent that God delivered the people of Israel from the hands of you know, the enemies or, whatever, or the enemies that were trying to destroy them, what would they do? They would set up a monument in honor of the Lord, in the honor of Yahweh. What else what were some of the other things they would do? They would set up a stone of remembrance to re remember how God delivered them, how God spared them. Or <clears throat> they would set up an altar where they would worship God and they would, make, they would sacrifice something and worship to this God who spared them. What did Saul do? I mean, it's clear that God delivered the Amalekites. He, like, put the Amalekites into his hand. Like, it was, the reason why Saul was victorious over the Amalekites is because of God. He said, like, just like God said that he, he would do to the Amalekites by using his, his people, he, he did. And so Saul, Saul, 
this is what he did. He, he confused his own glory with the glory of the Lord. That is the first step to rationalizing sin. When you forget who you are in light of who God is. Like in a bad way. So, <clears throat> it, gets, it gets worse. So Samuel looks for Saul. He finds him. And before, Saul, before, before Samuel can get a word out of his mouth, Saul approaches him. And he uses religious language. Church language. Right? What does he say? Bless be you. Uh, blessing, Samuel. Blessing. Blessing to you, to, the, to Yahweh. You know, from Yahweh, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel is standing there, really? Verse 14. Then what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Oh, Sam. <laughs> That's for worship. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just, we just want to worship the Lord. And, it, and what we discover in this chapter is, is the steps that one will take to, to uh, harden their hearts to the Lord and to justify their sin. This is, what Sam, this is what Saul does. This is why this is such an important chapter in the Bible. So, so, he, uh, so he says, what, what's this bleeding of the sheep? And then and so Saul opens his mouth and he says, well, they. Notice, notice the irony here. They. Who's they, Saul? You're, you're the king of Israel. You're the one who's been given the command. They serve you. Who, who's they? they? My soldiers. He throws them under the bus. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people not Saul, not, not, not me, the, the people. The people spared them. They spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. And the rest we have devoted to destruction. And then so Samuel says, well, stop. <laughs> it's like, shut up, man. I, I, I've heard enough. I will tell you what the Lord said to me. And, and so, Samuel, or so Saul says, okay, then tell me. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, you, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The, the Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, so he's repeating what God had commanded him, go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? I, again, just, just notice what's in the text here. How did the, vo how did the word of the Lord come to, come to Saul? It came through Samuel. This is what the Lord has commanded. And what was Saul guilty of in not obeying what was commanded? He was guilty of hearing the voice of the Lord and rejecting it. You know, we, we stand every time we read the scriptures together because we believe and we know that this is the word of the Lord from cover to cover. And to rebel against it, 
to sin against what God has commanded, to, to, to reject what God has commanded, is sin. And, and you would think at this point, Saul would be like, I really messed up. I really sinned. But he doesn't. Like, 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 look, notice how deceived, self-deceived he is. Verse 20, And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction, which he admits his sin in, a, in an effort to justify his rebellion against God. I mean, how often do we do those kinds of things? <clears throat> and, I, and he goes on, but the people, took, again, here's the people again, but the people, but the people took of the spoil, the sheep and ox, and the best of the, of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. I mean, this is staggering. This is staggering. I mean, I just want you to, 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 to think about this. Like there are, let's go to the, um, to the next slide. There are three this isn't, these aren't the only ways, but there are three ways that, that we tend to, to justify our own sin. Three ways that we tend to rationalize our own sin. The first is this, and we see this in the passage. We blame people or our circumstances. We blame people or our circumstances. Well, how do we do that? Like, we're like, well, you know, um, I have nowhere else to live. I have nowhere else to go, so that's why I'm living with my boyfriend or my, or my girlfriend. So I'm, I'm doing the right thing. Eventually we'll get married. Or, or it's because of my children I made this decision. Or it's because of my job I'm doing this. Or whatever it is. We, we blame people or our circumstances in an effort to justify our sin. Saul, you know, he, he, blamed, he put the blame on his soldiers. They did it, but they did it for, for the right reasons. Because he understood they're under his command. In essence, one of the ways that we rationalize sin is by looking at our circumstances or the people around us as an excuse for sinning against God. There's a, a second way that we, that we glean from the text what, how we rationalize our sin. We justify our sin by the good that we can do. We justify sin by the good that we can do. Like Saul's response was essentially, yeah, I know I was told to slaughter everything. I, I, I know. But look at what we can do for the Lord. We can, we can put all of this on the altar. We can sacrifice it unto the Lord. We can glorify him, make, make his name renowned. It's, you know, we, we could do it with, this, with the stuff that we took, the best that we took. We justify our sin by the good that we can do. We look at the good that we can do or the good that we're doing and we, we balance that on the scale of our own wisdom in relation to our sin. And so long as our good slightly outweighs our sin, then we're, we're, we're okay with our sin. Like God will look at our good and he'll ignore the sin. Well, how do we do that? Um, if I just fudge a little bit on my taxes, I'll have a little more money to give to the church. If I just tweak the truth a little bit, I won't hurt that person's feelings. Or I'll keep the peace with this relationship. I mean, and the list goes on. I mean, you could fill in the blank. There's a third way that we see in the text, and that is that we justify our sin by comparing 
our sin to greater sins, right? We do, we're really good at that, aren't we? Like I, and believe me, I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to my own heart here. I'm just as guilty. You know, Saul justified the sin, his sin by telling Samuel the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice it to the Lord our God. Anyway, like, the way this, the way this goes in our thinking is, Yeah, I wasn't really honest with my taxes, but at least I'm not robbing a bank. Or, um, yeah, I'm, you're right. I, I'm not willing to forgive this person. I don't like that person. I hate that person. But at least I'm not murdering the person. They're still alive. Yeah, I, I struggle a little bit with pornography. But at least I'm not having sex with my neighbor. This is what Saul does. And so what is, what is God's response? What, is, what, what, what does Samuel say to him? Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, listen to this. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination. That's witchcraft, by the way, in case you're wondering. And presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because, and this is the judgment on Saul, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. I'm stripping the kingdom from you now. And he does that. And it's just a tragic story because Saul's like, no, 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 I've sinned. Like, finally, he sees his sin. Why? Because what, was, what he... Tr- I, I didn't point this out in the first service and I'm just seeing it here uh, and I just feel like I need to share this with you. No, earlier, we learned that he set up a monument in his own honor. In verse 24, he, he, he realizes the kingdom is going to be stripped from me. I mean, that's why I set up a monument. Look at me. I'm a great king. God's judgment is I'm going to, I've rejected you from being king. Verse 24, Saul said to, said to Samuel, I have sinned, and for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and, and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. He's still not repented. Like, he's still, he's still blaming the people. And... Um, and says, pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And he says, I will not return to you. And so Saul, so Saul grabs Samuel's um, clothes and they tear. And he said, this is what's going to happen regarding the kingdom and you being king over Israel. I heard an illustration once of uh, when it comes to repentance. This person was describing Repentance. Because you could say, I'm sorry, till you're blue in the face. But if you were to visit somebody who's guilty of murder and about to be executed, and they have literally minutes before they're led to their execution, and you come in and you visit with this person and they're sobbing, What are they really sobbing over? Are they sobbing because they are genuinely sorry for the sin that they committed? Or are they sobbing that they'll never be able to murder another person again? 
What is Saul really sorry for? Is he sorry because he really sinned against the Lord, or is he sorry because the kingdom has been stripped from him? Whose glory was he really interested in? Whose, whose glory was his kingdom really all about? Was it about Saul, or was it about God? And I think from the text we learned it was really about Saul. Saul was just consumed with that. He was, yeah, and, and that was the first step towards rationalizing his sin. It was, all, it was about him. Like, God doesn't know enough. I know more than he does. I know what's best for me. This is what's best for me. I'm going to spare King Agag, and I'm going to take the best of the plunder, and, and I'm going to use it to profit from it. I know what's best, and thereby he rejected the word of the Lord. We rationalize our sin when we blame people for our circumstances, or we blame, or we blame our circumstances. We rationalize our sin when we ju by justifying our sin by the good that we can do, and we rationalize our sin by justifying our sin com by comparing it to the greater sins that others are doing or that we're capable of doing. And so, and God says, that's... You know, the, the sin, this rebellion saw is like divination, it's like witchcraft. And in the story of Saul, it just gets worse. It just gets worse. And I, I don't have time to get into it, but I just, there's some things I just want to point out, you know, so that way <laughs> you can get to Kirkgaudi and eat food. Um, like, because I, I don't want to, I, I, it'd be easy to end here. And you're like, well, this is great. And I feel really depressed now. Like, where's the hope? <laughs> There's hope here. There's hope here. Uh, so the kingdom is stripped from Saul. And verse 32, then Samuel said, bring, here, bring me Agag. This is how we know Agag was the worst of the people, of the Amalekites. N notice I'm like, He's been spared by the king. So Agag, the king of the Amalekites, verse 32, uh, came. And Agag came, and how did he come? He came to him cheerfully. Why is he cheerful? Because his life, the thing that mattered to him most, was spared, even though the, the people that he governed and was king over were, were slaughtered. It didn't bother him one bit because he was alive. And he said he, he came to him cheerfully. Why? Because in his mind, he was rationalizing. He said, surely the bitterness of death is past, meaning this isn't about me dying. Well, I mean, what power does Samuel have? He's just a prophet. He just represents this God that the Hebrew people worship. And so Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Now, that sounds harsh, and it is harsh. But when we read this, we should read into this. This is the ugliness of sin, and this is how serious God takes sin in light of his, his perfect holiness. But there's more here. There's more here that I want you to see as I wrap this up. Um... What Saul had was a Stetford God. That was the God that he worshipped. The irony here is, is Agag. 
And, uh, and what Saul should have done, Samuel had to do. And Samuel carried out what Saul should have done. But when we read this, when I read this, when I see these verses, I see a tale of two kings here. Actually, three kings if you include Saul. Here we have Saul and we got Agag, and then we got the king of kings and lord of lords, the good king, the merciful king. A king who, <clears throat> who humbled himself unlike Saul. He humbled himself, who existed in all of eternity, and he took on flesh, and he lived the life that we could never live, and he died a death that we all deserved, and he, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's what Philippians chapter 2, verse 8 says. That king, Jesus, the Christ. Uh, we read in Hebrews chapter 10, consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you, have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Well, what did Jesus do? He laid down his life for you and for me. Who deserves to be, who deserves judgment? We do. Who are we in the story? We're the Amalekites. We're Saul. We're, we're those things. Uh, what do we need? We need a Savior. We, what do we deserve? Judgment. What do we need? Mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is the refraining of getting what you deserve. And we have that in Jesus Christ. Jesus took on flesh, born of a virgin, lived a life that, that we could never live, a perfect life, and he laid down his life in your place and in my place. He is the perfect king. He is a merciful king. He is good, and he's not good because he gave us, he, he, he went to the cross in our place. That doesn't make him good. It makes him merciful. But he's good, and he laid down his life regardless. He didn't deserve to die. We did. He didn't deserve the cross. We did. We deserve to be hacked to pieces. We deserve to be scourged, but Jesus took upon that. He was crushed for our iniquities. He, he, uh, the chastisement of us was laid upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And to come to Jesus is to come to a God not of your making. To come to Jesus is to come to one who, who, who you can truly have a relationship with. God is not a step for God. Jesus is not a step for God. Jesus said, if you want to come and follow me, you must lay down all to follow me to take up your cross. You know, we're going to sing this song. And, um, and when we do, it's, it's let this song be your prayer. When we come to the cross of Jesus Christ, we come with empty hands. Come with empty hands. And the only thing that we bring to, to, to the offer of our redemption is our own sin. We lay it before the cross, our pride, our arrogance, our self-worth, we lay it all down before the cross to receive his forgiveness, to receive salvation, to be reconciled to this God who is holy. I couldn't think of any other better way to conclude this sermon series than just to reflect on that. So when you're ready, take the cup, take, eat the bread that represents the body of Christ, drink the, the juice that's in it that represents his blood. When you're ready, and then let's sing this song together as a prayer to him. I'm not going to come up to conclude our time in prayer. Let this song be 
your prayer to God. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.